Let's turn in our Bibles now to uh, John chapter 19, and that's page 1684, page 1684 in your pew Bibles, John chapter 19, and we'll begin reading with verse 17. Last week, uh, like uh, Pastor Young Kwong just mentioned, um, we began a series on the seven last words of Jesus. And uh, today we're looking at um, <clears throat> the second of those as it comes to us from uh, the Gospel of John. And as we look at these words, you may think, well, I've heard these same seven phrases, but I've heard them in different order. Why is that perhaps? Is this actually the second thing that Jesus said from the cross? We really don't know the answer to that. So it's not like each of these seven phrases appears in all four of the Gospels. In fact, uh, the one that we're looking at this morning only appears in the Gospel of John. And so trying to figure out where in the crucifixion these words fit, that's, that's not always something we can actually um, conclude. We just know that Jesus did speak seven words or seven phrases from the cross. Uh, this is, is one of them. And let's, uh, let's look what he says in John 19 again. Um, page 1684, beginning with verse 17. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I don't binge watch a lot of television shows. I suppose I, I do my share. Um, 
There was one a number of years ago that sort of caught my attention. It was on PBS. Perhaps you watched it too. It was called Sherlock. It was the one that starred Benedict Cumberbatch. And I kind of got into that one. I liked it because, um, you know, you'd be getting the story and there would be a crime and they would be investigating the crime and all of a sudden all the action would stop and, and the producers tried to figure out a way or the directors that you would somehow sort of look through the eyes of Sherlock Holmes and you would, you know, begin to see the clues that only he really saw and the ordinary eye just sort of walked right past and then at the end of the show, all of that came together, right? All of these clues sort of came together to solve the mystery of who had actually committed the crime. For some reason, that show always, always reminds me of the Gospel of John. Because John just seems to work on different levels as well. He tells a, a story, a rather basic, uncomplicated story, but at the same time, he's leaving clues all along the way that as you begin to take note of them and grasp them, it sort of leads you a little deeper into the story that he is telling. For instance, uh, the story that we just read today, the story of Jesus' phrase from the cross of this, you know, woman, behold your son, and, and disciple, behold your mother. It's a very simple sort of straightforward story i think for most of us jesus is creating his his church here he's creating his new community his new community of followers and believers and um and that's sort of the story that we read on the surface it's a simple story in some ways it's a story of jesus love for his own mother and yet, there's also this sense that if you dive down just a little deeper and you pick up on some of the clues, that story is, is sort of reinforced as well. And so, I'd like to try to, to do that with you this morning and just sort of look at this, uh, this account in the, in the vein of, uh, of Sherlock. So, we'll try to do that. It won't be quite as exciting. I'll just uh, tell you that right up front. Don't hold your breath or anything. But this is how the story begins, right? Um, Jesus on the cross, woman, behold your son. Woman, see your son. Perceive that this is your son. He says the same thing to his disciple. But let's just consider what's actually going on here for a moment. Let's consider Jesus' love for, for Mary here. Mary, first of all, as his mother, and that's what Jesus does here. Jesus acknowledges that he is a son, that he has a mother, that his mother is going through a lot of pain right now as well. Jesus is, is, is very much honoring the, the family that God gave him. Think about what's happening here. Jesus, John writes, carries his own cross to the place of the skull, to that place we called Golgotha. And there John writes... They crucified him. They crucified him. And, and John writes in the vein of, of all the other gospel writers as well. And if you notice that, as you read through the stories of the crucifixion, none of the gospel writers really spend a whole lot of time describing to us the physical torture, the physical pain of the crucifixion. 
we've had a lot of secondary sources that, that tell us all about crucifixions. And so we know pretty much exactly what's involved when a person is crucified. But it's as if the gospel writers are telling us that is not the main point. Don't get so caught up in the physical pain. There were two other criminals crucified right next to Jesus. They went through that same physical pain. What the gospel writers seem to be telling us is that the real pain that Jesus goes through is the spiritual anguish that he suffered. He was bearing on his shoulders all of the sins of all of mankind throughout all of history. Think about the weight that was pressing down on Jesus as he hung there on the cross. And yet, in the midst of that kind of anguish, Jesus still had the wherewithal, he still had the compassion, he still had the love to pause and to think of his mother and to address her. In the midst of all of that, in other words, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he's also thinking, you know, who's going to get up on that ladder and clear my mother's rain gutters when I'm gone? Who's the one who's going to hang her storm windows? Who's going to set up her internet so that she can stream church services and Netflix? Who's going to do that all for my mom? And so Jesus looks at this disciple and he says, you're going to do it. And he looks at his mom and he says, he's going to do that for you. Um, Fred Bruner says that what is going on here is Jesus is preaching a sermon from the cross and it's a sermon on the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your mother and Jesus has not forgotten. And Jesus would not forget, would he? Because we read elsewhere that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He honors his parents here. And in that similar way, we are called to honor our parents, to honor our families as well. Jesus here loves his mother. He loves his mother. But there's more. There's another sermon that Jesus preaches from the cross here as well. Jesus doesn't just love Mary as his mother. He also loves her as a widow. He loves her as a widow. And this is a sermon that Jesus has preached before. In fact, it's a sermon that he preached pretty much throughout his ministry. It's a sermon about caring for the widows and the orphans and the alien within your gates. It's a sermon that he heard from his Father in heaven from what we know, Mary is a widow. Okay, John mentions in his gospel twice that Jesus is actually the son of Joseph. And yet we never really meet Joseph in John's gospel. You have to go to other gospels to actually meet Joseph. We think and we feel pretty confident that Joseph probably died before Jesus began his adult ministry. And therefore, when Jesus now dies on the cross, Mary will be alone without her husband, without her oldest son to care for her. And so what Jesus does is he places Mary, he places this widow in the care of his disciple 
who from that very hour, we read, takes her into his household. In other words, Mary will not be abandoned. She will not need to fend for herself. She will be cared for by a new family, a family that will go out of its way to make room for her, will go out of its way to care for her and to care for the last and the least of these. You've heard that sermon from Jesus before, haven't you? Care for the last and the least of these. This is what the church is about. But Jesus has yet one more sermon to preach, and so he honors Mary not just as his mother, not just as a widow, but also as his disciple, his very own disciple. You may be wondering, didn't Jesus have brothers? I seem to remember reading about Jesus' brothers somewhere, and yeah, he did have brothers. They're mentioned in John's gospel, they're mentioned in the other gospels, and so the next natural question is, well, why why couldn't they care for Mary? I mean, why didn't they step up? Why did Jesus have to give this task to his disciple? Well, we don't know exactly. They should have stepped up. Yes, they should have been the ones caring for Mary. Here's what we think the issue is, what we believe the issue to be. And that is that John tells us in chapter 7 of this gospel that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe in him. We think that they came to belief later after his resurrection, but not before. In fact, the other gospels tell us um, that the brothers of Jesus actually thought he was crazy, that he was out of his mind. And if you've ever had a brother or a sister, you can understand that, right? I mean, this is, the, this is the person you watched grow up. You shot baskets with him in the driveway. He missed his share. It's not like Jesus made every basket he shot. He probably even lost once or twice. If your brother was the person you grew up with just like that, and all of a sudden he started saying, well, I'm the Son of God, I'm Lord of the universe, what would you have thought? This guy's nuts. And that's what Jesus' brothers thought. They, they did not believe. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his head. And if Mary did believe, if she did trust that he was the Son of God, what do you think they thought of her? I mean, can you imagine those family discussions Mom, how long are you going to let this go on? How long are you going to get caught up in his, in his crazy delusions? How many times are you going to keep slipping him some cash? When are you going to finally let him hit bottom? When are you going to stop bailing him out of jail? Look, Mom, we can't take it anymore. We're done. We think you should be done, but you don't. So we're done. That's what we think happened. And this is often what happens to disciples of Jesus, isn't it? In many cultures around the world, this is how followers of Jesus are treated often by their families. They are shunned. They're sort of excommunicated. 
often worse. True disciples are often considered crazy, simple-minded, easily manipulated. Who would believe that kind of thing? Who else would believe that a man was the Son of God other than crazy people? And so Jesus creates on the cross a community of believers, a community for disciples, a community where water is actually thicker than blood, where the water of baptism that unites us to Christ, that unites us to each other, is thicker than, than the blood of a family. Jesus creates a community that we call the church, where anyone who believes is considered a part of the family. Anyone, anyone, widow, orphan, mother of God, anyone who believes, believes that Jesus was sent by God into the world, anyone who believes will be family, will be children of God, brothers and sisters to one another. This is the family we call the church. It's a place for disciples. It's a place for those who believe. It's a place for those who are united in their craziness. Now, that's sort of a quick take of, of Jesus' sermons from the cross. Jesus is preaching to us. He's preaching His love. His love for His mother, His love for the least of these, and His love for His disciples. But now, let's, let's do the, the Sherlock thing just a little bit. Let's see if John has planted any deeper clues along the way as to sort of reinforce the story that we just heard. Um, and let's do that by thinking of three words that we find in John's gospel. The first one is this, woman. Woman. Maybe you noticed how Jesus addressed his mom from the cross. He didn't call her mom. He didn't call her mommy. Right? He calls his father Abba. We saw that last week. It's kind of like daddy. He doesn't call her, you know, mother. He's not formal. He doesn't even call her Mary. He calls her woman. Woman. Now, my guess is that if you called your mother woman, a serious discussion might ensue. <clears throat> woman. Um, woman is not a term of endearment, is it? It gives you the impression of, of distance. Woman is a, a sterile sort of term. It's cold. And it seems to be John's way of communicating in just one word what other gospel writers portrayed in story. When you think of, of the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you could almost get the impression that Jesus did not think too highly of the institution of family. Almost as if he had something against families. I've come to turn father against son, mother against daughter, Jesus said. There was a time that Jesus was teaching once and, and, and somebody came to alert him that his mother and his brothers were outside asking for him and 
And Jesus simply responded by saying, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at the crowd that he was teaching and he said, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus even, you know, went to, think about this, the sons of Zebedee who were fishing with their father, part of the family business, and what did Jesus do? He said, you guys, follow me. Leave your nets, leave your boat, leave your dad, leave his business, let him fend for himself, and you come and follow me. Almost as if Jesus did not have a healthy respect for the nuclear family. And I don't know if we often think about that side of Jesus. We just sort of assume that the institution of the family is one of those untouchable things. It's sort of holy in its own right. And, and Jesus would never speak a negative word about the family, the family that we grow up in, the family that we sit together in church with. We can't imagine that Jesus would speak of the family almost as if it was competition to him. Competition to what he was doing. And that could be because sometimes we forget what Jesus was doing what Jesus was about. William Willimon recounts the days when he was the dean of the chapel at Duke University. And he says this, he says, when I was dean of the chapel, I used to receive a lot of letters from university parents who knew that I was involved in their kids' lives. He says this, never did they say, help, I sent my child to the university and he got addicted to alcohol. And never did they say, help, I sent my child to college and she became sexually promiscuous. He says, no. The calls I got were more like this. Help, I sent my child to Duke and she became a religious fanatic. Religious fanatic defined as She's going on a two-year mission trip to Haiti with the Catholics. You see how things get a little confused sometimes? I wonder if that's the way Zebedee felt when Jesus came calling for his sons. Just leave your boats behind. Leave the family business behind. I want you to catch people from now on. I've got something more important for you in mind. I wonder if Zebedee wrote a letter to the chaplain. What is this Jesus doing? What is he all about? I didn't sign up for this. Listen again to what Willimon writes to his own congregation. He says, most of us would do anything for our families. In fact, when it comes down to it, most of us don't do anything hard or heroic for anyone except our families. For instance, most of us are not violent by nature, and yet when asked, would you kill in order to protect your family? We readily answer in the affirmative. And yet few of us feel much responsibility 
for anyone beyond the bounds of our kith and kin. We give to the Red Cross most generously when the victims look like ourselves. And Jesus has a considerably larger mission. And that's something we can't forget, friends. Part of of our mission is to our nuclear families. Jesus affirms that for us when when He cares for His mother from the cross. But we also have to understand that Jesus came for a much larger mission, didn't He? Jesus' mission was to the world that God loves. He wants the world to know that God sent him. Read it. John 17 tells you all about it. He doesn't want just our families to know that. He wants the world to know that. And when Jesus calls his own mother woman, that's what he's telling us. That our mission is larger, it's bigger, it's more grand than just our nuclear family. That's the first word, woman. The second word is the word our, um, as in time, our. We don't pick it up in our translation, but the last verse that we read today, Jesus says, from that hour, from that hour, um, he took, the, the disciple took Mary into his own home. Now, Mary appears twice in the Gospel of John. She sort of bookends the Gospel, right? Here she is on the cross, or seeing Jesus on the cross. She also appears at the very beginning of the Gospel, right? You probably remember the story. The wine at the wedding reception wasn't so good, and and so she um, calls Jesus into the whole deal, looking for him to do something, do something about this party, do something about the wine. Help here, basically, Mary says. Now, it just so happens that in that account as well, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. Woman. You know, why do you involve me in this, woman? Um, But he also says this. He gives the reason, and he says, my hour has not yet come. Woman, why involve me? My hour has not yet come. So you have these, this combination of these two words again, woman and hour, and it's almost like John wants us in this moment of Jesus speaking from the cross to remember this first scene in which Jesus spent time or interacted with his mother at the wedding. So if that's what John wants us to do, let's do that. Let's just compare these scenes a moment. Let's look what happened at the wedding. The party's bombing, like we said, Mary feels it, and so she asks Jesus to do something, and he says, again, it's not my hour. So basically, the most he can do, he says, the most I can do is give you a sign, and that's what he does. He gives her a sign. He gives us all a sign, and what he does is he takes these jars that are full of water, but they're full of the waters of purification. In other words, they're jars of water that were used for ritual cleansing, Okay? And it's these jars of water that Jesus turns into wine. Now, now, what's that all about? Well, Jesus is basically prophesying that he has come to turn this, this old age, 
the age that's characterized by constantly, um, constantly trying to purify ourselves through external washing. There's this burden, right, of going through these rituals and trying to make ourselves clean, trying to make ourselves acceptable and lovable to God. And, and Jesus says this is reflective of the old age. This is the age that you're living in. And what I have come to do is to take these waters of ritual cleansing and turn them into wine. And what he's saying is, I have come to usher you into a new age. And it's an age not of trying to get God to love us, trying to clean, cleanse ourselves enough that God might smile on us, but he wants to usher us into an age where we are at a wedding feast, right? And we're drinking wine in celebration of a union that has taken place. And it's a, a union that's filled with joy. And basically Jesus is saying, and I am the bridegroom, God is the bridegroom, and you are the bride. And it's a time of celebration. It's a time of a deeper fellowship and a deeper joy. This is the new age that I'm taking you into. And you get there by drinking a new wine, the wine of my blood, the wine that is shed on the cross. Jesus is creating a new family that has a deeper love, a deeper fellowship, a deeper joy. And people want to join it because God is there. There's reason to celebrate. It's unlike any other community that we know. From this very hour, Mary was ushered into that kind of family. This very hour of Jesus on the cross, she was ushered into something better. Family or friends, I've never done a formal survey of anything like this. Um, but I bet that if you were to ask anyone who's involved in counseling and therapy what they spend most of their time on, they would probably tell you that they spend the majority of their time helping people get over the damage that's been done to them and their families. Why is that? Because all we look for in our families is to be known and to know someone deeply. We look to be loved and to love someone deeply. And so often our families are just dysfunctional enough that we can't find those simple things. And it destroys us destroys us. And Jesus is saying here to Mary, put all that behind you because I have in store for you a family, a new age where you will truly be known and you will truly know and you will love and you will be loved. I will bring you into an age where the family actually lives up 
to your expectations. That's the hour. There's one last word, and it's a small word. It's basically the word his own. It's a little Greek word. Uh, We read it again in that last sentence from the cross, or the last sentence actually that John writes. He says, This disciple took her, took Mary, into his own home. The word home is really not there in the Greek. Um, It just simply says he took her into his own. Into his own what? You have to sort of supply, um, supply that yourself. He took her into his own family, into his own household, into his own circle of, of love. Who determines that circle of love? Who's in and who's out? Who determines that? That's one of the most hurtful things about community. It's that question of who's in, who's out. It's that feeling of I'm not in, I'm out. Why wasn't I invited to the birthday party? Everybody else was, right? Why wasn't I included in that? Why didn't they ask me? That's a hurtful thing. Who gets to decide who's invited into the family of God? And who gets to decide who stays in that family? Who gets to decide who's treated with love in that family and acceptance? Who gets to decide all of that? Well, I think that's what that little word, his own, gets at. It has a lot to teach us. It appears not just here um, in this last scene, but it appears early on in the book of John. In fact, it appears in the prologue in John 1, where it says that Jesus, the Word of God, came to that which was his own. His own. But then we're told his own did not receive him. He was rejected by his own. Yet, it goes on, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And so there we see the first definition of his own. They are the ones who receive the Son. They are the ones who believe in his name. They are his own. The word also appears in chapter 13. And here in chapter 13 is, is, is the, the beginning of that last night before Jesus' death. It's the celebration of the Passover in the Gospel of John. And we read there at the beginning of that night, we read the words that Jesus, having loved his own, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And then he goes on to wash the feet of his disciples, and then he begins that walk, that long walk to the cross. And that's where the disciple that Jesus loves ends up. And so we find this other definition of his own, right? They are the ones who let Jesus wash their feet. They are the ones who watch Jesus as he walks to the cross, and they are the ones who are gathered at the foot of the cross. They are his own. They are his own. Well, who stands at the foot of the cross in John 19? There's only one disciple. There's only one of his disciples that made it this far. 
We don't know much about him. We don't know his name. We don't know if he's single or married. We don't know his age. We don't know if he excels at music or sports. We don't know what kind of food he likes. All we know about him is that he was loved by Jesus. It's like that's his identity. It's like that's all that matters. He was loved by Jesus. And that's the point. That is all that matters. Is that you are loved by Jesus. That's what it means to be his own. You're loved by him. Why? We're not sure. Who gets to decide who belongs to the church, who belongs to this new community? Jesus does. It's made up of all the people that he loves. That's what matters in this place. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter if you have an important job or, or not an important job. All that matters in this new community is that you are loved by Jesus. And if you are loved by Jesus, then you ought to be here. In fact, then Jesus commands us to love one another. What does Jesus say? If, if Jesus loves us, our next question is, well, how do we love you, Jesus? What does he say? Whoever loves me will keep my commandments. What are his commandments? Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. It's as simple as that. A new commandment I give you, love one another. Why? Because it's by your love that you testify to the whole world that I was sent by God. Jesus commands from the cross. It's a command. When he says, woman, behold your son, it's in the imperative. It's a command. Look, perceive, this is now your son. And he says to the disciple, look, perceive, this is now your mother. You belong to a new community. And it's a community where I decide who belongs and who does not. The author Flannery O'Connor um, lived for a time alone and anonymous in New York, New York City. And she said that going to church in some, such an impersonal setting, she said, actually had its advantages. She said upon returning from, from Mass one Sunday, um, she said this about her time in church, although you see several people you wish that you knew, you also see thousands that you, you're glad you didn't. You see thousands you're glad you didn't. And that's kind of the church, friends. They're not always people that we would choose to be with. They're not always people who are like us. They're not always people that we like. They're here not because we like them, not because we have something in common with them. They're here because they are people that Jesus loves. And because they are people that Jesus loves, Jesus commands us to love them as well. Do you dare look at the people that you're sitting in church with here this morning? 
Look around. These are the people that Jesus commands us to love. Not just the people sitting in your pew. The people who are sitting in all these pews. These are the eyes that Jesus wants us to develop. This is the kind of vision that Jesus expects us to look at one another with, with his eyes. And we always want to change that, right? We always want to change that somehow. I, I was thinking this when, uh, when Pastor Young Kwong was making a plea for people to help, um, help serve spaghetti next week, next week Saturday. It, it reminded me of these trips to Zuni, or this year it's to Zuni, and we've done a lot of service projects over the years. And at these service projects, we often say that, that all the participants are sort of supposed to do their own dishes, right? So you clear your own plates, you, you scrape the food off them, and, and then you wash them. And it's amazing, um, and I'm sure I was with, like this as well when I was a kid, but you look at some of these teenagers and they've never, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to scrape their plate into the garbage and wash it. So they're scraping it into the wash water, you know, and it's got, you know, there's stuff floating on the water and it's just gross. And, and you're thinking, did, did no one ever teach you to do this? And you're looking at their whole family through this light of incompetence. <laughs> and that is so often how we view other people in the church of Jesus Christ through eyes of, are they competent or not? Not through the eyes of, are they loved by Jesus? And we look at ourselves that way as well. So that when somebody comes next to you and you're, you know, you're, you're trying to wash all of your dirty dishes and you're putting the gravy in the wash water and all of that and somebody comes up next to you and they say, can I help, can I show you how to do this? They're not ridiculing you. And, and they're not criticizing you. They're not putting you down in any way. They're just trying to teach you how to be more responsible as a member of the family of Christ. But quite often, we can't take that because I don't see myself as being loved by Jesus. Because, you see, if that's first, if that's foremost, that I can see I'm a person who's loved by Jesus, who's loved by Christ himself, the Son of God, then I can take a little critique, right? I can, I can take it if someone says, you've never done this before, have you? Let me show you. That's part of being part of the family of God. It's all in that little word, his own. You are his own. I am his own. We are loved by Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Jesus, it's so hard for us to grab hold of to think of ourselves as people who are loved by you, people who are redeemed by you, people who make up um, the bride of Christ. Thank you for reminding us in some of your final words 
reminding us how precious we are to you. And thank you for calling us to to look at each other with your eyes and to see that we are all precious in your eyes. And that's the basis upon which we are part of your church. That's the basis that we are called to love one another upon. And so, Lord, help us, fill us with your Spirit, that we may indeed be that new community that you called us to be, a community of love. Let us hear your command that if we do love you, then we will love one another. Lord, make this church, this church right here in Brookfield, our congregation, make this place a manifestation of your love Make it your new community, that community of love and joy that you promised you would. In your name we pray, amen.